I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Ditch the clowns on the left. And the jokers on the right. And join Michael Smirkanish right here. In the middle. This is the Smirkanish Podcast for independent minds. I'm really eager to chat with my next guest to welcome him back to the program because a decade, 15 years ago, Michael O'Hanlon was, he was a repeat guest, and I'll tell you why. He's the Senior Fellow and Director of Research on Foreign Policy at Brookings, and since the first anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, Michael O'Hanlon and his colleagues would compile charts on the state of the country that would then be published in the New York Times, really good barometers as to what exactly is going on in Iraq. And then uh, on the sixth anniversary of the invasion, they expanded their focus to also include Afghanistan. And, and I always thought that reducing the situation to numerical values that we could all understand and appreciate was really, really of value. So as I've been watching these events unfold during the course of the weekend, I've been wondering, what does he think now? This is Michael O'Hanlon. Michael, thank you for coming back to the program. Michael, thanks for having me. It's nice to be with you. So, for example, with regard to Afghanistan, you would routinely tell us how many troops do we have there? How many deaths have there been? What's the size of the Afghan security force? Uh, What's the per capita income? How many people have telephone subscription? How many kids are in school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Before I talk about the last 72 hours, let's just reflect on the data that you assembled over a long time on Afghanistan. How would you characterize how life was getting better or not getting better since we entered that country? Yeah, Michael, great question. Well, certainly at a level of sort of normal life, material indicators of progress, things were a lot better. So life expectancy for the typical Afghan improved by at least 10 years. You can imagine that the data wasn't always great for how things were in the 1990s during the warlord and then the Taliban period. But the best estimates that we could come up with, uh, you know, using other people's work and field research were probably average life expectancy in the 40s. You had child mortality rates of 20 percent or more. Uh, You had a lot of women dying in childbirth. You had, you know, people dying of simple infections because there wasn't antibiotic availability. And then by the time we got into the 2010s or even the latter part of the George W. Bush years, we were already seeing uh, an improvement of, you know, maybe 10 years and probably a half, uh, a halving of the child mortality rates of the maternal uh, childbirth rates uh, for, you know, for serious injury or death uh, during childbirth. And so all that looked great. Uh, What doesn't look great, of course, is the violence. um, And that actually continued, as best we could tell, to get worse. People started to classify 
the death rates for Afghan soldiers and police because they thought the information was too discouraging. So we would do our best to estimate it by extrapolation or by piecing together comments of government officials. Sometimes you have to do your own best guess. There's a danger with, as you can appreciate, Michael, there's a danger with quantitative metrics in that you wind up measuring and discussing what is most measurable when it may not be the most indicative of what's really happening. So if people classify data that you really need to understand the country and therefore you leave it out of your chart, maybe the, you know, the data looks good, but it doesn't really get at underlying trends. So we would try our best to get at those underlying trends, recognizing there's always a big challenge. One last piece, and I'll stop this overview, uh, and probably what's on your mind and a lot of people's minds, you know, why did the Afghan army collapse so fast the last week? It's very hard to measure the real fighting spirit of an institutional army. And what you need to do is, you know, because you can't measure it, you can't really know how they're going to perform in the field when there are no Americans around to watch and advise and you know, provide air power, what you really want to do is recognize that you've got that measurement uncertainty and therefore not try to be too brilliant in immediately cutting off a given unit from help and assuming it's going to be fine on its own just because it has enough ammunition and enough rifles and enough pay. You've got to, you've got to take time to look for the intangibles, which are hard to quantify, uh, but recognizing that it's hard, you've got to uh, sort of go on a gradual path towards disengagement. Let these units do more and more on their own. Keep an eye on them. Go back and help them if they need it. Provide them air power until they have their own air force. So this is where I think President Biden made his mistake because he shouldn't have pulled out. We had already reduced our forces by 95%, and that last 5% was crucial for giving more morale, more professionalism, more bravery, um, more niche support of various types to those Afghan units that may have been numerous enough, that may have been in most cases uh, well enough paid, but you couldn't really vouch for their professionalism, their fighting spirit, and therefore you had to recognize that and have a more gradual transition approach. So that's where the data and the, and the, you know, the Afghanistan index run out of insight, and you need to acknowledge that and build your strategy in such a way as it's not just reliant on these numbers and data points and figures. So I totally get the difficulty of the task, especially when you are asking about, say, favorability ratings for the Afghan government or the Taliban. I imagine it's not the same as Gallup calling me on my iPhone or catching me at the dinner hour and asking me, what do I think of Donald Trump or President Biden. I do take note, though, I I pulled some of your old charts and I see that in 2003, public favorability rating for the Afghan government, 90 percent. Two years later, it's 80 percent. Ooh, two years later, it's 59. And by 2009, it's only 48 percent. Now, interestingly, there was not a corresponding rise in favorability of the Taliban, but you're going exactly where I wanted to go in this conversation in terms of how much of a shock should it be that today, Monday, here we are and the whole country has fallen? Well, I'm pretty shocked. So are I'm not you? going pre- yeah, to pretend otherwise. I mean, you know, it's always easy, especially for us uh, in the uh, analyst world, the intelligence world, the think tank world. Once something has happened, <laughs> to explain why it happened, as if somehow we knew in advance and that it was always inevitable. And, yeah, you know, Yogi Berra used to say prediction is hard, especially about the future. If you want me to predict the past for you, sure. I, can say sure, I can say sure the reason this happened is because, you know, there was a demoralization 
that as the United States decided to pull out very fast, and the trend was already gradually against the government even in the years before that, and then we don't even have a decent plan for how to get out except to protect our own people along the way, but there's no opportunity for the Afghans to develop a strategy where they selectively prioritize protecting certain parts of the country. There's no opportunity for them to prove their mettle in the eyes of the world and their own citizens. And so they don't wind up, you know, generating any confidence. And so you have this just, and Afghans don't like to be on the wrong side of a losing fight. You know, they, they've proven that they're not, they're not suicide bombers for the most part. Yes, some of the Taliban were, but most of the Afghan army and police, these are people who wanted a paycheck and they wanted a decent life, you know, life for their families. And that's why they joined and they don't want to be on the losing end of the fight. So that's how I would explain what happened after the fact. But if you had asked me last week, I would not have predicted it would happen this fast. I would have thought that it would probably have happened either over a number of months or maybe not at all. Maybe there would have been sort of a division of the country, a military stalemate that might have developed as certain parts of the country were better defended than others. Most of the north, for example, I thought could be held by the government and its friendly militias and its, and its special forces, which were about 15,000 probably of the best fighters in Afghanistan. They were on the side of the government. They were part of the army. But they wound up not fighting at all. And um, no, I would not have predicted that. Yes, it, it was a possibility. And I'm not completely bamboozled, but I certainly am surprised. Well, was it therefore a complete intelligence failure, the, no. the likes of which we haven't seen since WMD in Iraq? Or was no. it unknowable? Yeah, I mean, I think it was unknowable. You know, I just heard an advertisement for his show on your network by Michael Morell, the former deputy CIA director. And, um, and he was quoted the other day saying it was not an intelligence failure. And I, I think I agree with him when, you know, the, when the CIA is basically saying government might fall in six months and then they revise it and say, maybe it'll be three months. And then it turns out to be one month. Well, you know, you can call that an intelligence failure if you want, but uh, I can't tell you who's going to win the Super Bowl in January. And, you know, there's a certain amount of uncertainty in human life and human behavior that nobody, even, you know, with all the great gadgets and, and expertise they've got at CIA, nobody can be expected to get the details right down to that level of fine-tuning. So they were basically saying the likelihood is the government will fall. And President Biden had gotten that briefing before he made his incorrect decision, as I see it. And so that's the fundamental job the intelligence community did, and they did that part right. Now, could they have given a little more tactical warning um, so we could get our embassy personnel and so forth out? Well, maybe, but if they did that, then they're also, uh, first of all, claiming more prescience than they really have. And second, they're making the outcome even more inevitable, because if we start running for the exits and the whole world sees that and all the Afghans see that, then whatever hope there was of holding on to some part of the country is, you know, is lost. So I don't fault the intelligence community uh, really at all. I, I fault President Biden's decisions and decisions on policy by previous presidents, um, advice from previous think tankers like myself. You know, the strategy wasn't that good, but we still had settled on a strategy that was at least tolerable. It didn't cost a lot, didn't take a lot of American presence. And uh, I would have played that out for a number of additional years. I suspect we're going to learn exactly what the president was told and by whom, if for no other reason than people, this is the way Washington always works, will want to protect their own legacy. And to the extent they have information that puts them in a good light, uh, it'll be released. What do you think the data will show when we know the whole story? What do you think he was actually told? Well, I think uh, 
First of all, I think uh, let me mention the the Afghanistan papers, this Washington Post project, which did a lot of good investigative journalism, but I still think missed a key point. They were so much in a hurry to be the Pentagon Papers redux that they imply that the people on the inside for many years knew that this mission was failing and refused to be honest about it or level with the American people. That's not really what happened. People always knew it was frustrating and always were looking for a better strategy and always hoped that the new strategy would work better than the old one and gave it their best college try. So maybe they were guilty of too much uh, sort of inherent can-do-ism. But that's not the same thing as deliberate deception of the American people. And uh, on the meetings, I I was on the CIA advisory board 10 years ago, so that's the closest I've come to being on the inside of these conversations. And, you know, I can tell you that when we were – at this point, it wasn't classified to, to, to say this, that, that when there was discussion of the Syrian civil war during the Arab Spring of 2011 and 2012, a lot of people thought that President Assad of Syria would fall. And here he is 10 years later, he's still in position. But, you know, people would acknowledge the uncertainties and they would explain the rationale for their predictions. And any president or anybody else at a table is going to have the opportunity to probe and to say, well, what about this? What about that? And these CIA analysts are pretty smart, and, and they understand the good ones, and that's most of them. They understand the uncertainties about what they're trying to predict. So I think there's no doubt that President Biden was told, if you pull out, there's a very high likelihood the Afghan government will fall within a year. Uh, there's a chance that it will fight on and that it will hold on to certain parts of the country. There is almost no chance that the war will, will sort of in some way dissipate or that the government will do better without us than they were doing with us. And um, and there's almost no chance that the you know that, that the Taliban will somehow relent and decide it's really time to make peace now that the evil you know uh, infidels have left the country. So I'm pretty confident President Biden got all that, and yet he still made the decision he did. In July, you wrote a piece for USA Today, republished by Brookings, under the headline. Here's how we can save Afghanistan from ruin, even as we withdraw American troops. What is it that you prescribed that wasn't followed, if anything? Well, first of all, that was, you know, a little bit of a Hail Mary. I mean, I was doing my best to look for a a strategy. I didn't want to give up, but I, I already knew that we were in trouble. And um, and so that's why I was so strongly opposed to the Biden decision back in April. And I had written before that decision that President Biden should keep forces. Um, so that's the, that's the overall thrust. But we certainly needed to try to do things like help the Afghans develop a credible strategy and share some of that with the public, including their public, so that people would not lose confidence. And then you would see this domino effect or this snowballing of surrenders and capitulations because people didn't really think there was a backup strategy. We certainly needed to keep U.S. air power engaged with the promise that we could provide more in the future, at least against concentrated Taliban attack. And, of course, President Biden you know, used some air power, but he never really made up his mind on that. We needed to find a way to keep the Afghan Air Force operational it still depended on some degree of Western contractor support. And that was our choice because we had built an Afghan Air Force that took a while to get off the ground and still needed our technical help in modest numbers, uh, you know, a few hundred or a couple thousand American technicians. But there was no place for them to work um, once the U.S. troops were gone and the bases were relinquished. And so we needed to figure out where in the region you could repair the Afghan helicopters that were needed to ship around special forces and also bombard Taliban positions once they concentrated for attack. So those are the kind of things that we we really needed to do uh, and didn't do, uh, at least not to the extent necessary. What now? 
Now we don't have many choices, right? I mean, the Taliban won. Um, and so we've got to take a two-pronged approach to the Taliban, in my judgment. One is to make sure they understand that if they do affiliate with international terror or if they even badly mistreat their own people, we have the means to punish them. And we still have the will and the military might to go in and do targeted selective attacks, maybe primarily with air power and commandos. I'm not talking about another 20-year effort. Uh, but we can make them hurt. And if they want to sort of run a regular government, you know, they were in the presidential palace yesterday. They seem to enjoy being there. If they want to control major buildings and really run the show, you know, that presents a lot of targets for us. And so if they support terrorism, uh, their days are numbered in those kinds of locations, and they should know that. But they should also know that if they behave in a more humane way in the future than they did in the 90s, that we could be willing to establish diplomatic relations and provide at least limited amounts of humanitarian relief for their population to sustain some of these gains in health and survival that you and I were talking about 10 minutes ago. That, I think that's the beginning of a strategy. And, you know, it's not the ideal strategy, but that's where we are. So I've been speaking to you and also keeping an eye on CNN with these images at the airport where you've got, it looks like a thousand or so people clamoring to get aboard any aircraft that might get them out of that country. Is there any lifeline that can be thrown to those folks? Well, that's where the, uh, I'm not sure if we can fly people in or out faster or out faster than we are, but I think this is where the strategy I was just talking about starts to have its first important application. If the Taliban do not allow these people to leave safely, that's already a reason for us to resume offensive strikes. And so, you know, it's a deterrent strategy, but it's not, uh, you know, we got 5,000 U.S. troops on the ground in Afghanistan again today, which is incredible for a situation we were trying to scale back. But, but that's, for the moment, going to provide some degree of protection and leverage for those who are in the right places. But we're also dependent on the Taliban not to carry out pogroms and massacres. And again, they should know that if they do, we've got means to retaliate. Final question, and thank you for being so gracious with your time on what I know is a very busy day for Michael O'Hanlon. Those 5,000 troops who just landed, I, I can't see them coming home anytime soon. Might the net net of this be that we maintain a footprint, but now we're maintaining a footprint in a country controlled entirely by the Taliban? No, I don't think we'll do that because I think they'll be too vulnerable there right in the middle of Kabul to maintain that position. What I did think was possible was that perhaps the North would remain largely free of Taliban control. Turns out I was wrong. But um, if, to the extent the North, you know, the Panjshir Valley, which is this gorgeous, narrow, long valley with mountains on either side, very hard to conquer militarily, made up primarily of Tajik, who are not Taliban. And, um, you know, and, and it, it never went under Taliban rule in the 1990s, and it may not now. Those kind of locations, perhaps we could have established some improvised operating bases, some special force or intelligence bases, and maybe we still will down the road, but that'll be in smaller numbers. That'll be probably covert. I think these 5,000 are just there to expedite the safe removal of Westerners, and then they will leave, too. That's my expectation. Michael, even better than I remember. Holy smokes, you're like wine. I really appreciate it. It's great talking with you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow, Director of Research on Foreign Policy 
at Brookings. There was a lot of information just dispensed to all of us. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds.